everybody to another inversion episode of our webcast podcast from the Ocean Curious Project. I am your masked person, Micah Hoffman here, and I am with my colleagues, my friends, and I'd like to introduce them. What we'll do is uh, we'll do what we've been doing the past couple of times. I will introduce somebody, they can say hi, and then you all will tell, you all will call on somebody else. So, I'm going to call on my bald brother, Nick's Intel. Nick, say hi to everybody. Hi, everyone. This is Nick's Intel. I'm really glad you could join us, whether you're watching the webcast or you're listening to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to the show we have planned for you. Uh, and next, I'm going to point downwards and introduce Matthias. Hi, Matthias. Good evening, everyone. This is Matthias, also known as MW OSINT, and I'm, I'm glad to be back after I took a short break, and I think we have very interesting topics for today, and I'll hand it over to Josh. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Josh here, Bill 88 uh, Glad to be uh, joining, the, joining the panel here for the first time in a while. Uh, should be a, a good time. Um, I'll throw it over to Technozette. Hi everyone, it's Technizet here. I'm very happy that you're all here to either listen live or listen and watch later. Over Hi. to Micah, who's on my right. Cool. Thank you, thank you. Um, well, welcome to each of you. Feel free to take off your masks. We are socially distant. And um, uh, welcome to our audience, too. We've got several people on with us live. So if you all have questions, please put it into our QA system. Otherwise, this is going to be a little bit different format than what we've been doing in the past number of weeks. We have no guest. And because of that, we're going to be able to go deeper into some of the subjects that, that we want to go into. So uh, for this episode, it'll be some discussion, some news, and I think a little bit more in depth on some topics that might be interesting to the OSINT community. Before we do that, I do want to uh, just uh, announce a couple of new Patreon members for our project. Oh, and what's this? We have OSIN Curious Masks. Yes, OSIN Curious Masks. They protect you and keep others curious about what you're doing. OSIN Curious Masks. <laughs> but, come on, Lizette. <laughs> so, uh, they Best are on commercial our ever. Buy yeah, them, okay. everyone. Buy them. Buy them. Buy them by the dozen. We, and if you if you have trouble breathing through them, just put holes in No, no, don't do that. Don't do it. Um, they are on our red bubble. We have a bunch of other swag on our red bubble as well. Um, wanted to just call out uh, several people that have recently become Patreon patrons of our project. We've got Probe Driode or Droid. Uh, we've got Spider and James Motherway. Um, for those of you that don't know, our our project is a nonprofit, and we are sponsored by people and companies like you in the OSINT world that are helping us to teach others. And there are times when uh, we get comments from different people that, and they actually uh, give us some really thoughtful feedback about why they're participating and why they're giving to our project. And I just wanted to 
take a moment to to show on screen here one of the the comments of one of the people that has recently become a sponsor of our of our webcast podcast project and just say that um, this this kind of feedback that what we do every other week our blog posts and the other things that we do for the community really really do make us feel good about what we're doing because I mean all of us are volunteers we're given parts of our family time and other times just to put out things in the hopes that it's useful to you in your work in your curiosity in your OSINT learning and to get feedback that says we're hitting our mark means the world to us so Thank you to Spider for writing this. Thank you to our other Patreon patrons. And thank you to our sponsors for, well, making all of this possible so that we can come to you every couple weeks. We really do appreciate it. Now, since we don't have any guests, um, what we figured we'd do is uh, there was a whole bunch of buzz around geolocation of mobile devices. And we happen to have two people here, Nick's and Matthias, that wrote up a significant, uh, very technically deep article. So, um, Nix and Matthias, why don't you go ahead and, and drill down on this a little bit and, and teach us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so, this is a really interesting article to write because if you've done any kind of internet investigation before, then sooner or later you come across the issue of IP addresses and what are they and what do they mean and what do they tell me. Um, and it's really interesting from an OSINT perspective because um, there are re some really great uses for IP addresses um, in the world of OSINT, but sometimes if you rely on them a little bit too heavily uh, without understanding what's really going on underneath, they can actually really come back to bite you um, if you if you lean too heavily on them. So Matthias and I put this together, <clears throat> it's up on our blog, so um, you have a chance to read through it, but for before we sort of get to the idea of how you can geolocate someone with an IP address, or as we'll find, it's actually really hard to do that. Um, how, we talked a little bit about what IP addresses are and um, what they're useful for. <clears throat> so we have a little bit of a history lesson to start off, which is when we talk about IP addresses and how the internet put together, the current IP system is about 40 years old, which is like in internet terms is absolutely ancient. Um, so the current IP system that we use, IPv4, uh, was put together in the early 80s and they figured out with that system it could create about 4.3 billion IP addresses, which if you think back to what computing was like in the 80s, that was never going to be an issue because no one could have ever thought that there would be so many IP addresses. But fast forward 30, 40 years and we now have this big problem where there are now more internet connected devices than there are IP addresses. Um, so what does that have to do with OSINT? Uh, it's all very interesting, but um, some IP addresses are static. So if you visit a website um, or use some kind of web service, then you usually have an IP address which hosts perhaps a dozen or even hundreds or sometimes thousands of different um, domains, different web services. And if you're involved in OSINT, I guess in like the corporate recon world or as a pen tester or something like that, these static fixed IP addresses that host web services are really, really useful to you because they're usually a starting point if you're involved in pen testing or um, recon, something like that. Um, but that's kind of the limit of, I guess, I, others might have different views on this, but that's kind of the limit um, of IP addresses as an OSINT tool um, when they're tied to fixed services. 
But what we talked about a bit in the article is what do you do with these IP addresses from domestic services like your home broadband or even like public Wi-Fi hotspots or from cell phones, from mobile phones? What can you learn from the IP addresses that are associated to those? Um, and it's really kind of a difficult question because we've all seen these um, GeoIP location websites, right? Like uh, MaxMind uh, is a really popular one. Or sometimes when you go and visit a website, they'll tell you, you might, there might be a pop-up that'll tell you where you're located. Um, and how do we actually locate the, how do we make that connection between an IP address and a website, and a website or where you're connected from? And when we dug into it a little bit more for this article, we actually found the link between an IP address and its report location is actually quite uh, weak. Um, and there's a reason for that. But in the example on my blog, that we put together, um, I used Germany as, as an example. And actually, when you looked at broadband IP addresses, that is your, your fixed line addresses like you might have in your home or your office, there's quite the strong link between the physical geographical location and the broadband IP address. I think in Germany, within 50 kilometers, it was something like um, 83% accuracy. Uh, so it's still, you know, it's still within 50 kilometers. That's quite, that's like the width of a city or more. Like it's not so accurate. Um, but actually when you take away broadband, fixed line broadband and start to look at cell phone um, IP addresses, it becomes really, really quite inaccurate. I think even for Germany, which had higher accuracy than average uh, at MaxMind, it was still only 38% of mobile IP addresses were within 50 kilometers of where they reported to be. Um, and that's kind of interesting because people sometimes rely on these findings um, quite significantly. But what, and this is MaxMind, one of the commercial companies who actually sell this information, um, they're putting a really heavy qualifier on how accurate it is. Because it's saying if we tell you your IP address is in such and such a place, actually there's only a 38% chance that it's even within 50 kilometers. And I think for the United States, which uh, has more IP addresses allocated to it than any other country, it was uh, it was like 15, 16% accuracy within 50 kilometers. Now, hey, Nick, a question for you real quick. Yeah. Because I think one of the, the confusing pieces for a lot of people that are just getting into geolocation is you have cell phone towers that are local to different places in the world. And, and we know that those cell phone signals are only traveling a certain distance. But... And, and so people think that sometimes their mobile device is being localized to a certain tower, and that tower has a set number of IP addresses that it gives out. Um, so I think that that might be some, where some of the confusion comes from. Yeah. But that's not the case, right? No. Uh, I'll, if, if I may, Nix. Um, yeah, so it doesn't matter which uh, a cell phone system you're looking into, if it's 2G or 3G or 4G, or maybe even the future 5G, um, the tower itself is just a relay station that, that doesn't really have any IP address or anything else that is relevant um, allocated to it. it. It does have a certain ID, and I'll get to that later on and actually show you examples of that. Um, but all it does is basically just relay the information to the backbone of the network, and that's where all the stuff happens. Um, so when we move on, especially in this article, uh, you'll see that uh, in a modern 3G or 4G network, um, there might be one pool of IPs for like the complete cellular network, um, and they're just randomly picked out of there, um, no matter what the cell tower uh, is um, that it's connected to. 
Um, so that actually, you know, leads to these low rates in uh, accuracy being 39, 38% or even beneath that compared to the landlines. Yeah, totally. So <clears throat> with, uh, with cell towers, the, the rate of accuracy is even less um, for the reason Matthias stated. And also um, because the cell towers are really just a relay to get your traffic further into the network, um, you often find that mobile IP addresses are shared between hundreds, sometimes even thousands of people at the same time. And they're really volatile as well. Like, so with your, your home, home broadband, for example, you might find, you know, if you ever log onto your router or if you visit one of these sites that tell you, right, your IP address can be the same sometimes for a few hours, a few days, sometimes a few weeks. It depends on your ISP. I know when I've used different ISPs before, I've had, sometimes I've had the same IP address for weeks. Sometimes it's just for a few hours with another company. But um, what we found um, both ourselves and in some of the papers we cite in the article with a mobile IP, your IP address can vary like even from one second to the next. Like, so you make one web request and then by the time you wait for another one to go on the next page, you have another IP address. Uh, and you're probably sharing that with perhaps hundreds or even thousands of other customers. So I think, I guess the takeaway point from this is if you have to think of an IP address as it's a fixed or it's a point on a network, it doesn't have to have any corresponding like reference to a physical place like the main thing is that you can send data to this whether it's located where on your isp's network somewhere um it doesn't have to be tied to a specific physical location because for the isp that doesn't really matter and for the users it doesn't really matter we just want to have connectivity but back to the OSINT point of view like if we are not aware of this and you just pick an ip address off the web somewhere or from MaxMind or the other geolocation databases you really need to be aware of this before you sort of lean on it too heavily um, because the degree of accuracy for cell phones in particular is really quite poor, but that's by design. It's not designed to be a hyper accurate tool. So what you can see here is, is just um, one example of a, a landline IP and the different geolocations from different databases. And as you can see here, it's kind of all in the vicinity of Munich. Um, but at the same time, there there's quite a span between this. I mean, I think from, from Munich down to this little area, it's, it's probably 40, 50 kilometers beeline. And if we were to look at the same thing for a mobile IP in that same area, all of a sudden we're talking about like 150 uh, kilometers um, of radius where this was kind of geolocated. Um, so again, here you see kind of the inaccuracy um, that Nick just mentioned, um, being that the the mobile IPs not are only are not only used by multiple people, thousands of people, um, but also depending on where they leave the the system, the gateway, um, it could be in just a completely different uh, region. Cool. Well, we actually have a uh, a question here from Nocent. It says, can you elaborate on how this works when LEA, or I guess a law enforcement agency, pings a phone? Does that get a cell ID or is this IP address based? So that, that's, that's a good question because then I think, Nix, if we're finished with this, we can move on to the, the next article um, based on this because after we discussed it and after we put out this or, our article, 
I thought I, I wanted to, you know, do some field testing and figure out how accurate is all this. So I, I spent my morning driving around through Germany and, you know, a little road trip. And at the same time, just looking at what happened to my phone and what information um, was on my phone and was sent out from my phone that could enable other people to geolocate this. So, Nix, are you okay if I move on? Yeah, no, go for it. Okay. Um, so this is the recent article from today, and it's it's basically uh, built upon the article we put out last week. So all the you know IP stuff that was explained last week, but this morning I just got up and I, I drove somewhere, and from that starting point I started looking at the data that I had, and we discussed the whole IP data already. So I wanted to go into the cell phone data, and this again you know brings me back to my past about uh, to my job that I, I previously had. So getting into more of a, a, a SIGINT side. And the first thing I did is I actually um, opened a developer console on my phone to actually see where that phone was located in that moment. So I was connected to an LTE network, um, a German LTE network, a German provider, and in a certain cell ID. Uh, so this was information um, that is on my phone, and this is also information that law enforcement but also intelligence services could obtain. Uh, it is very important to, to point out this is not information that we as OSINTERs can get, or that other people that would try to basically attack us in some way could easily get. Um, so it's mainly law enforcement, intelligence services, or people with a lot of money that really, you know, have something against you. Um, what I did with this information is, you know, try to figure out where is this cell located. Um, and there's a, a really nice um, site that I like to use. It's called Cell Mapper. And with this uh, site, it actually maps out the different cells that I have. So I took all the information I had put it in here, and uh, just to scroll down a bit, I could actually see on the map uh, the actual E node B or cell tower, um, and then the different cells that were allocated to it, and one of those cells being the one that I was in in that moment. So also here, very nice OSINT resource, if you happen to have this information, which you won't come by um, that often, um, but just a, a nice OSINT resource for that. Um, so I was in this cell, and then I said, okay, I'm going to drive like 100 kilometers south um, and just see what happens. And during the complete drive, um, of course, you know, the cell only has a certain distance, a certain reach. So my phone was always handed over from one cell to another or one cell tower to another. So law enforcement or intelligence agencies could be able to track this information and kind of get a pattern of life. Again, not something that a private person could do, but something that law enforcement agencies and intelligence services could do. Uh, the, the interesting thing here is what I also did is I looked into the IP address, which was given to my phone um, by the network because I was in a 4G network, because I also wanted to know what happened with that IP address, you know, from the starting point here next to this lake to the area that I was going. Um, so the IP address, again, looked it up on MaxMind when I started and was like, okay, this is an accuracy radius of 50 kilometers around Munich, which is true. I, I was 50 kilometers around Munich. And then when I arrived at my destination, I checked and I saw that the IP address was the same one. And I also looked that up again and saw that, hey, this is the same IP address, 50 kilometers around Munich, but in fact, I was more or less 150 kilometers away from Munich. So again, the accuracy that MaxMine had given me, one of the, the leading companies worldwide to do this was, was off. And so from there on, I, I started playing around a bit and just 
reconnecting to the network. Um, so basically turning on the airplane mode, turning off my phone. And every time that happened, the phone would just unregister itself from the network. And every time I turned it on again, it would re-register and get a new IP address. Um, so that's also something if you turn the airplane mode on, if you turn your phone off, um, you can forcefully get a new IP address. And, and again, uh, going on further, a lot of these IP addresses that I received afterwards were all in Munich, even though I was in a completely different area based on the cellular data that I had. So if it were up to law enforcement and intelligence services, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't rely on an IP address. They would rely on the cell data from the phone. And this can be obtained in many different ways, not OSINT. We're not going to get into that right now. And since I was close to the border, I was like, okay, let's just go to Austria and see what happens when I'm in a foreign country. Um, and this was something that was kind of new to me, very interesting. So as soon as I was registered in an Austrian network, um, I received new um, IP addresses because I had to re-register to a network. And apparently my provider has a complete um, IP address range that is only given out to roaming phones, so phones in a foreign country. So I, I could not take this IP address and say, hey, this person is located in a specific region. But I assume that with this IP address range, I could say, okay, this phone is definitely not in Germany. So something I want to follow up upon um, to see if it's similar in, in other regions of the world as well. Um, because keep in mind, this is just Germany. It could be different in the States, in the UK, in the Netherlands, uh, when it comes to how these IP addresses are allocated. Uh, so here from the location in Munich, it took me to Nuremberg, which is even farther away. Then I logged on to a new Austrian network. Then it took me to Stuttgart, which is completely different uh, direction. So within basically three minutes, um, I was in three different towns in Germany, uh, which again shows how unreliable the IP address is when it comes to cellular networks. So that was, you know, the short wrap up. And that, that's, you know, what I got out of it, a, a nice view this morning. But, you know, just read the article, go through it. And not only is it a nice road trip that I did, but it also shows you how you can potentially geolocate a cell phone or not, because most of us will not have access to this cellular data. Um, one thing I'd like to show before I end this is basically the site cellmapper.net, how it would look. Um, so I could just look for all kinds of different networks. In this case, I said, just show me everything in Austria belonging to a certain mobile provider or carrier. Then I zoomed into the map um, and I just clicked on one of the cell towers and then it will kind of give you a you know, rough area of reach for the individual cells. And if you were to click on a certain cell, um, it would also give you more information on that cell. So the actual ID of that cell, also some information um, on the frequencies used. So again, more sigint stuff, um, but a, a really nice resource for me if I were ever to have access to this cellular data. Matthias, uh, just to interrupt you real quick, uh, Jeff Lomas actually made a, a blog post on OSINT Curious showing how to use OpenCellID.org, which is a very similar site to this, with a digital forensics dump of somebody's mobile device. So, like you said, not OSINT, um, but if you are able to get the cell phone tower identifiers, you can go to places like this and use OSINT, but you don't, you're not starting off with that 
that uh, cell tower identifying data that the IP address in this map doesn't even enter into the equation. Yep. And there are lots of different sources for this. So this is just my favorite one. Um, but you can also use Wiggle or the one that you just mentioned, Micah, um, because they will all have different data because a lot of this stuff basically comes from people war driving, just, just driving around and collecting all this privately and uploading it. So it's not like there's a provider that is putting this data out there. This is just, you know, a crowdsource collection. So in that case, if you have something like this, if you have the defer data, um, just try to use different sources with everything in OSINT is kind of like that um, to get the best result. Excellent. Cool. Hey, uh, while we're on your, your screen, don't, don't close your screen yet. Do you want to go over your saving images from Google Maps, uh, your blog post from this past week? Oh, yeah. Or two yeah, weeks I can, ago? I can, I can do that. Might as well. In fact, where is this, is this a challenge to figure out where that castle is, too? Where did you go this morning? Disneyland. No, it, uh, I, actually, I actually put it in the article. I, I said I'm uh, going to Neuschwanstein. Um, I did strip the EXIF data, um, but, yeah, that's, that's not really a challenge. Uh, and I actually, I really put that in there. I said this is the castle that Disneyland was modeled after, the Disneyland castle. It's not the other way around. <laughs> Come on. Seriously? Yeah. Most popular okay. castle in Germany. Yeah, that's right, Pete. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, since, since you know, uh, mentioned it, uh, another article that I put out the past two weeks is just saving images from Google Maps and from Google Street View. Um, during the investigations that I do at work, uh, but also in my free time, I often look at Google Maps and especially the, the so-called photospheres, those 360 degrees uh, degree images that people can upload themselves, so not the official street view. And a lot of times I, I need those as basically evidence in, in a case, and I always end up making screenshots. But of course, if you have a 360 degree um, image, you're going to have to end up making multiple screenshots and maybe putting that back together. So I was thinking about a, a different way to access this and, and a lot of stuff that I've learned from you guys. And I think, Micah, you had a couple 10-minute tips on this going into the developer tools in your browser. So, so that's basically what I did. I just opened the developer tools um, on that specific page and, and tried to figure out, is there a way to download this image? And there actually is, because what you can see here, this 360-degree image, is actually just a JPEG that was uploaded. So. In this part, you can see here, I'm not going to do it live. Um, you know, someone uploaded a 360-degree image. I can pivot left and right, and you can see the, you know, the, the different views. And if you go into the developer tools, um, you can actually download the full image uh, as it is seen here. Matthias, could you zoom in just a little bit so we can see a little bit? Oh, yeah, bit. of course, uh, of course. Thank you. There you go. Perfect. So this is, again, something you might see. Um, and then here with the developer tools open, and if you go into the network tab, um, you'll basically see what the, what the browser is loading at that moment. And it's very straightforward that the browser is only loading JPEGs. Um, so all you have to do is just find that JPEG and copy it into a new tab. But the thing is that it only gives you a part of that complete image. So it has a coordinate system here saying, hey, this is, you know, the position X0, Y0, Z2. So that's the X and Y axis and how far you've zoomed in. Um, so if you copy that into a new browser tab, um, you're going to have to manipulate the, the URL a bit to get the full image. So basically, just, just take all the coordinates out and um, change the, the size of the image, and I'll just scroll down, and then you might get something like this. So this is like the complete 360-degree image in one JPEG. 
um, where you can see everything that is relevant uh, to you. And really, really neat uh, a function for me, like I said, because I, I'm often used to take screenshots of this and now I can just pull the complete image. And if we're talking about a 360 degree image, um, we're also talking about a very high resolution. So a lot of this stuff is like, I don't know, more than 9,000 times something pixels. Uh, so really something you can also zoom into and actually see a lot of details on this. And the same thing that I did with the um, JPEGs for these photospheres, that's also something you can do with the profile pictures for the Google users that uploaded this. So in a lot of cases, you'll stumble upon a, a user has this profile picture, it's way too small for you to see. So again, go into the developer tools, um, look at the network traffic, pull up basically this icon, and then just change the resolution so you'll have it in a larger version. And if this were to be a person, um, you could actually take the image of this person and do a reverse uh, um, image search on it. For example, on one of the tools we're gonna talk about in a second. The PIM hey, tool, yeah. When you, uh, can you scroll back up just a moment or two, back up to that, that full picture of the entire thing. Do you notice, right there, right there, do you, do you notice or have you noticed in the past uh, any distortion in the picture? You know, when you take something that's 3D and you make it essentially flat, there may be uh, fisheye views or anything like that. Do you notice anything that in, in the pictures you've downloaded? Well, definitely. If you, if you look at the bottom here, you, you'll see that. Um, so, okay. of course, the only thing that is really focused is the object in the middle here. So basically the starting point and, and everything around it um, is kind of distorted, but it, it still allows you to kind of zoom in and really see the details on this. Um, it's just the, the top and the bottom, basically, because it, it is supposed to be a 360 degree image. So not just 180. So like a putting it on a globe or something like that, then you'd have the bottom and the top, the north and the south actually distorted. But other than that, let me just see, copy image location, put this in here. I, I could zoom in and I could see quite some details while, while going through this. And this still isn't the, the full resolution that I have on my website. So you can get more details when you actually download this. Excellent. That's terrific. And for this, you're just accessing free resources. It's not like you have to be authenticated to Google. You just have to be able to recognize stuff in your web developer tools and whatever yep. web browser you're using, uh, recognize things and be curious and click yep. on stuff and tamper with the values in the URL. That's just awesome. click on stuff. That's basically it. Click on stuff. Until you break something. <laughs> right. And then go backwards. Yep. Done that. All right. Cool. That's Matthias. Thanks, Nix. Appreciate uh, your input there. Um, so let's go ahead and continue with the wonderful news that is happening in OSINT. And for this, uh, have any of you seen this Hush Puppy stuff? This wonderful Instagram um, influencer that has 2.5 million followers that, well, had some problems. Lizette, Josh, anybody? Yeah, I, I saw this one. I don't know if anyone else did. Um, it was quite a, a popular story this week, but I really like these stories because they're always sort of really good real-life examples of how OSINT is useful. Um, so this guy, Hush Puppy, a few years ago, he sell, he's selling second-hand clothes on a market in Nigeria. Fast forward a few years, and he's got hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. He, as you can see, um, has all the trappings of wealth, um, and he's living the high life in Dubai. 
he claimed he could become a property developer, oh, sort of overnight successful. But the truth of um, what happened and has come out this week is that he was involved in a huge um, business email compromise fraud. So basically, um, without going into too much details about that, um, he tricks businesses into sending money to him instead of to people they're supposed to be sending money to. And he's made, I saw one figure, it's from like $430 million, him and his associates have made doing this. So obviously a lot of this investigation was not based on OSINT, but um, he gave himself away and identified some of his co-conspirators because he put everything on Instagram. Like he wasn't hiding the money and he wasn't hiding who he was associating with or where he was. So when you read up on what some of the law enforcement officials have done, they just followed him on Instagram like everything else. So you want to identify his assets? Well, there's his car, there's his clothes, there's his private jet. Where was he on this day? Oh, well, this is him on a trip to Europe. This is when he flew to Paris. This is when he was in London. This is when he's in, like, and this is just with Instagram. Obviously, there is more to this investigation than just the Instagram, but um, I think a lot of the people who he was committing the offences with, like, he, he filmed himself when he was going to meet them. So then you're give, telling everyone where you are on that day and who you're with. And it's just just real simple OSINT stuff. And But when they put it in front of you like that, I guess it's kind of an open goal for the Dubai police. Cool. And Josh, you pulled up that FBI, uh, um, what is it, uh, uh, indictment against him? Yeah, the DOJ indictment documents are always really um, interesting uh, on these cybercrime um, arrests because there's a lot of uh, details about the the suspects that they, they go ahead and throw in there. And if you're interested in the case or if you, maybe you're looking at something related to them, you're going to find a ton of interesting OSINT pivot points that you can play around with. Um, there's literally four or five of Hush Puppy's email addresses listed in that indictment, his phone number, um, his address in Dubai where he was arrested. So you've got a lot of uh, research capability that you can kind of jump into with these. Um, there's been some DOJ documents in the past that have had uh, cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin addresses and things like that. And those can be really interesting to uh, dig into as well. So here's a question for each of you, because I know that some of you are law enforcement. Um, when the when law enforcement says, hey, here's what we're indicting a person on or here's the information about them. Is that a good time for us to start diving in deeper or should at that point, you know, since law enforcement is involved and is identifying those assets, those accounts, whatever, should we maybe stand back so that we're not caught up or our sock puppets aren't caught up in those investigations? Thoughts? Does it matter? I don't know. It's, it's hard because in, in the U.S. system, like everything's made public in the indictment. It's all before any sort of proceedings have taken place in the UK and certainly in Europe. I think all this doesn't come out until after they've been convicted. So you don't even have the opportunity to dig around and stuff. So um, I think they probably wouldn't thank you um, for, <laughs> for, for trying to help it would be my guess. But yeah, it's, um, it's yeah, different because we do things the other way around in Europe, I guess. Thank yeah, I you think for saying if, we do that if, the other way around instead of we do it a better way. That, <laughs> thank you. Go ahead, Matthias. I think if, if, if time passes and, and basically the case is closed, um, this is good stuff to practice on because a lot of the, the, the stuff that, that is out there will still be out there in a couple of years' time. I mean, the internet doesn't forget. So this might be something that is really, really good as a, a practice case for OSINTers as long as they don't interfere with law enforcement or kind of get themselves targeted because they try to connect on Facebook or Instagram or stuff like that. 
picturing, I don't know if you've, you've all done this, but, you know, in some of the past employers I've worked for, there's always that annual security refresher. And I'm picturing, like, in some country somewhere, it's like, all right, gather around all you business email compromised people. We're going to learn from Hush Puppy, all right? Now, this is what not to do. And, <laughs> and they're using his example as, like, what not to do. But I don't know. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. Um, cool. Now, Matthias. My SIGINT friend, you brought up this really colorful website here. Uh, tell us what it is. So this is basically just an overview of ham operators worldwide. So, so amateur radio operators, very niche. Um, I don't really know if you could ever use this. But uh, if you do have a certain case where you have a call sign or you're looking for a specific ham operator, um, then you could go to this site, uh, you could filter back to, I think, 24 hours or a couple days, and then figure out um, if this person was active and from where this person was active. Uh, the, the reason I looked into it is because there's apparently some kind of like drone flying around uh, at the moment across the world, and people are tracking that because it's also sending out a, a ham signal. Um, so something that is very interesting. And then you also have technical data. So what setup do they have? What antenna do they have? What bands are they, um, are they operating on? Um, so just very, very interesting for me as a signature, but also since it's open source and it's, it's openly available data, I just thought I'd throw it in here. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, cool. Uh, so, Pete, I don't think so. This is not ADSB. This is more amateur radio. Uh, Pete, one of our attendees, asked, uh, "Is this uh, could ADSB data be in, in inside of here?" That's different. I mean, uh, people with amateur radios or software-defined radios can detect ADSB, um, but this is specifically people with um, amateur. They're they're on different frequencies. Would you say, Matthias, that's right? So these are the basically the licensed amateur radios. In each country, you have to get an amateur radio, a ham license. Um, you're also registered with your FCC or whatever you have in your country um, with your call sign that is given to you basically by the authority. Um, and those are the people that are just basically sending out, you know, it's more or less comm checks. All they do all day long is you kind of communicate with someone from somewhere on the world. They don't really talk that much. They just send out a ping and then they get really happy if someone answers from Antarctica or New Zealand or some other exotic place. Um, but like I said, just a really, really uh, cool and, and nice overview of all these ham operators worldwide. Cool. Awesome. All right, next item is PIMEyes. Yes, we're entering a number of sites that we're that we're going to be talking about this week about facial recognition and 3D modeling of faces. Um, who wants to talk about this? It's German, so I'm going to say it's probably Matthias or Nix. Uh, yeah, I, in fact, you have just something to add to this one afterwards. I think didn't you, Matthias? So. Yeah. Um, so this is PIMEyes, um, which has been around for a while, but <clears throat> there's some articles written about it this week, um, which sort of put it into the spotlight a little bit. But basically, it's a public, uh, publicly accessible facial matching, facial searching tool. So um, PIMEyes have indexed millions and millions and millions of facial images from all across the web, from social media and so on. And you can upload a photo and it will bring back matches. So you could upload um, someone's face and then you could pull back all the other websites where they actually, appear. I've actually done that. Uh, I have this picture of me or from thispersondoesnotexist.com 
and I've uploaded that to PimEyes, and these are the hits that it thinks are, you know, relevant to that. So just throwing that in there. It actually is really accurate. I, I did upload a picture of myself and yeah. when I was shaved, and it actually came back with the two OSINT Curious episodes where I did not have a beard. Uh -huh. So it kind of pulled that out of the, the YouTube preview, um, and then somewhere in there, you know, you could see me, and that's what it pulled up. So really, really accurate. I think it's like 900 million people that they claim to have in their database. And then there were some German investigative journalists who looked at that and were like, hey, this, this isn't such a good idea, and, and this is kind of a breach of uh, GDPR. Um, so right after that article, um, Pim, I changed the way that you can upload images. So for everywhere in Europe with a European IP, um, you can only basically allow access to your webcam and then get a live image, um, which actually uh, one of those journalists did. He just, you know, held up the, his, his phone with a picture of another dude and it worked. I think or that's what also, we're seeing now in the video yep. right there. Yep. Or you can use a virtual webcam or you can just use a VPN and get a non-European uh, IP, and then you'll still be able to manually upload images. But of course, every time you upload something there, it's, it's gonna make its way into that database and help that AI. So OPSEC uh, is a real issue here. Data privacy is a real issue here. And even though it's a nice OSINT tool, it's not something that I would recommend, you know, in your private life, just to see where you are on the, on the internet. Well, and that, that's a great point, Matthias, because one of the things that we're going to talk about a little bit later on, later on is that OPSEC, that securing ourselves. Because th there's a big part of me that's like, ooh, where did, what does it know about me or my family or, or people that are close to me? Um, because I want to see how effective the tool is. And yet, there's another part of me that knows when I start uploading pictures of Micah Hoffman, that's going to be input and, restore, and stored in their database and then other stuff. Uh, well, then it'll come back with pictures of Nick's or Nico. True, true. Are you <laughs> saying all of us bald guys look like, come no. on, man. Come on. <laughs> So what are your thoughts on that? Josh, Nix, Technozap, what do you think about that? I mean, is there a point, what is the point where you decide, you know, all right, I'm going to go ahead and test this out with things that I know um, to see how effective it is versus your privacy? I'll definitely not try it with my own picture, so. I will try it with my picture, right? Yeah, I will definitely try it, and you can try it with my pictures, and then we're all in there anyway. <laughs> Excellent. No, these kind of tools always freak me out because I always find it a little bit um, scary. Like who is behind this? Who is gathering all of this data? I'd rather not try with my own face. So either get a picture from this person does not exist or maybe try a free stock photo from the internet from somewhere just to see how it works and what the results are when they're coming back. So that would probably not be my approach. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, of a difficult one because and there was another issue, I think it was earlier this year, like with a program called Clearview AI, which I think it was just limited to law enforcement and some commercial companies, but it did basically the same thing. Like, and there was a huge outrage about it and it was shut down and there was a backlash against PIMIs and they were, what happens with them, I don't know, but you kind of feel like it might be a bit inevitable now, like all these images of ourselves that we've been putting onto the internet for years and years and years, like... They're there. Yeah. Like, we don't control them anymore. And it's, it's kind of hard. Like, if it's not PIMIs, it will be someone else. Because these guys, 
often just using either Google have a facial recognition API, which is available, and Microsoft have one. There are other, the Amazon have one. Like these, the tools are there. If you want, if you can get the data set and collect all the images in the first place to feed it, um, yeah. then these tools are, are going to be around for a long time in one form or another. I think. Yeah, and we remember the findface.ru and findclone and, and other things. So there are definitely people out there with the repositories. And uh, one of our, our listeners, uh, attendees here and non, uh, says, you know, you could pick something that you know is public out there, like your profile picture on a public website or something like that. Or, gosh, you know, every single one of these, these OSINT Curious webcasts where our pictures are out there and then use that picture for the picture for PIMIS to search for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Other thoughts on this? All right. So um, I mentioned earlier that we that I took this picture off of this person does not exist.com this morning. Uh, this is uh, one of those pictures that is generated by machine learning. It's not a person who really exists, but I wanted to go ahead and use a 3D face reconstruction site that Laurent Bodo mentioned in a tweet earlier this week. And the idea here is that you have a 2D image and it extrudes the face to make a three-dimensional image from it. So I've taken that this person does not exist face because I thought doing Matthias's face might be a little disturbing to people. So I've gone ahead and, um, and extruded the face here just by uploading this face. And here's what we get. Now, the neat thing about this is it is actually pretty good at showing me what this person, I mean, some of it's a little freaky there, right? But um, it is pretty good for doing, you know, how long the nose would be and all. This is, again, it's an estimate based upon a fake image or real image of somebody that's never existed. So we, we can't measure the nose and figure out if it's right or not. But um, what do y'all think about this? I mean, this is... This is now getting into 3D modeling. You could take that, you could print it out, you could lay somebody's image over top of it, and now you have a three-dimensional model to put up in front of your system. Or unlock your phone. Or unlock your phone, right? Because now iPhones I, are looking at your chin and stuff. I haven't seen if people tried to do this using this specific tool to unlock a phone to see if it works with the facial recognition. But my guess is if that this is becoming better and better then it probably will be able to unlock phones or devices where there's a facial recognition i just got myself a three I'd, I'd be curious go ahead go ahead babe yeah, I'd, be, I'd be curious to um, see if the extrusion would work for sock puppet creation you know much the same way where we'll take the this person does not exist and, you know, tilt it or invert it a little bit to, to not have that default positioning. Um, it might be a good experiment to try some sock account creation and see if it passes, you know, Facebook requirements, so to speak. Or get, in, you know, how some of the platforms are now asking for multiple pictures of you. Um, so if you have the fit face on and then you have at an angle and you could crop that out and put that on somebody else. I mean, yeah, that, that could work. Um, what I was going to say is I, I, I got a 3D printer recently and, and um, you know, so I was thinking, I was like, ooh, I made like this little 3D thing of my, my uh, Web Breacher logo and extruded it. It was really neat. But now I can print people's faces. This is cool. So next week we're going to have the Nix Intel bobblehead. 
along with Matthias's bobblehead. We're going to have a whole bunch of people around so that you all be around me all the time. This is like Mission Impossible, the, like the first, first two yeah. movies. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's go back real quick. Um, Nocent asked a question about the PIMIs. Uh, does anybody know if there's a PIMIs solution for voice recognition instead of facial recognition? Not that I'm aware of. I don't know no. anyone else has heard of it. No, I have actually, I was on a holiday last week and we were in the woods and there's actually like a bird Shazam. So you would be able to like record the voice of the bird and then would be able to see which bird it was. And then you can pivot down further to see if it was like staying over the summer here or is it traveling during the wintertime? Is it in a different time zone or in a different country? It's very interesting. Had a lot of fun doing that. Wow. You got to share that link to uh, with us because that I've always, I, I love hiking and stuff, but going in the woods, you know, it's, it's just a bird it's, to me. I can't it's tell actually, you. Um, uh, it got me thinking because... A Dutch Ocean guy, he posted on Twitter ebird.org. Right. It was where you can upload an image of a bird and to see where it was on the world. And this is actually from or working with eBird. It's called bird.net. It's an Android application, but there I've I've spent some time looking into it. There are lots of applications that can do this, but I use bird.net. Um, and it was amazing. We've learned a lot about different birds we were hearing there. And it was quite cool. And so relaxing, I've, not to stare down. Well, we were looking at a screen, of course, but you were like paying more <laughs> attention to the surroundings. <laughs> but getting back to the, the freaky part is if there's something like that for birds, I'm guessing that at some point in time or somebody has an audio database of a whole bunch of people and they could do the same thing, right? I mean, because it's just... Well, that just... kind of does exist for podcasts already. Um, I, I remember there were some quiz time challenges last year which were around podcasts and and I think there it was mainly just a, a voice processing of that podcast and you can type in something and then it will go look for it. But if they already have that index somewhere, I mean I'm pretty sure you could possibly easily upload a an audio clip and then go have the system look for it as well. Josh I, I know about that site too, yeah. Yeah, and Josh, you were you were you typed in the chat that there uh, that there is voice print recognition software that's out there for consumers. Would you say? Not typically. Uh, most of it's going to be like an authentication measure. Um, if you call into like say your credit card company, and I don't know exactly which ones, but they may have you record a passphrase and then repeat it into the system and and do the recognition to to authenticate that you are the person that you're claiming to be. Yeah, yep. I I know that some of those uh, some of them do that. Cool. Well, we have one more thing uh, that we I wanted to talk about here with faces, and that's this: who, where, with who, whom, with. Darn it! I almost nailed it. Uh, w four facial recognition. This is an interesting post that essentially, and and the post goes on. It's really really good read. I love Lorenzo Romani and what he writes. Um, this is from back in May, and it shows essentially you downloading a bunch of pictures or sharing a whole bunch of pictures with a facial recognition system. Then you give it a whole bunch of other pictures, and it will pull out and say, "Hey, this face I've seen in other pictures." Um, now, Matthias, this is kind of 
of along the lines of what you've done with the Azure or Microsoft facial recognition stuff, right? It's it's here, let me train the, the engine with these faces, and then here's other pictures, pull out the images. Would you say? Yeah, definitely. I, I think I also shared the, the previous post to this one um, back in May on one of the, the webcasts, because uh, Lorenzo goes through how to set this up with different Python scripts and all kinds of stuff. Uh, I unfortunately never had the chance to try it out, uh, but that is on my bucket list. Excellent. And it is a little technically deep here. You're you're doing things in Python on your system and, and installing things, but it shouldn't be that hard to follow. All right, I um, wanted to talk really quick about TikTok and the stir that's happening. Um, this is not necessarily OSINT related, but it's more on the privacy side. And this is what I was alluding to earlier when I was talking about how us doing open source intelligence sometimes opens up our platforms to data gathering efforts by other people. For instance, some of you may have targets that you've looked at in TikTok, and so you downloaded the mobile app, hopefully onto a burner phone or a phone that's been sanitized and not your personal or your work phone. Because there are applications, uh, this is a, a uh, an analysis of TikTok, the mobile application, and it says that there's a lot of very open permissions that you grant the application to do to your mobile device. So if you are doing TikTok um, OSINT and you have to have that mobile application on there to gather data, the platform TikTok, the platform itself or the application may be doing something to your underlying phone and destroying some of that anonymity that you think that you might have. Um, Technizet, uh, Josh, anybody have thoughts about how to do this in a safe manner? I mean, using the mobile apps on virtualized devices or something like that? Well, the problem is probably always going to be that if you're using a free service like TikTok or anything else, you're going to be a product. So there's always going to be a leakage of data and your name, phone number, ID of your phone, uh, advertisement ID, they will always be known to the company you're using the product of. So using it in a safe manner probably is not to use it at all, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and some of the stuff you can't get from from uh, Instagram, from TikTok, using the web-based interface, you don't get all of the features. So you have to dive into the mobile applications. But even those mobile app, mobile, the advertising IDs that are on our devices, some of them pull things that you cannot change off your device, like the the network interface card for your Wi-Fi's MAC address, and other things that would identify your device across multiple. Um, multiple things. So, so if you have a device and you're using a certain person um, on that, or you're using a certain account on TikTok, TikTok may be grabbing information so deeply from your device that, that when you erase that entire phone, you do that factory reset, and then you reload TikTok on there with a new account, TikTok may already know that you're using it on the same device and be able to connect things. But that's the platform. And like you said, that's kind of the risk of what you're getting into. Well, actually, I've read this book. It's in Dutch, unfortunately. If there are any Dutch members who are listening, it's called um, Je hebt wel wat te verbergen. So you've got something to hide. And it actually dives into how our mobile behavior is being auctioned to advertising companies. And they can actually recognize, okay, you're 
you've got a phone, you've got a, uh, an advertisement ID, which you can change if you want to, but the advertisement system at the back of your phone and the auctions, they know within a couple of seconds by the apps you're using, the speed you're typing, uh, the location you are, that you're the same person again. So they know, okay, this is probably a female in her 30 to 40s and she's living in the Netherlands. And that's how they sell your data. And they're still always be able to know who you are by just the behavior on your phone. It was freaky to read, but yeah. also not complete, like, you know it's there, but then yeah. somebody points it out to you and then you're more aware of it. Yeah, that's that. Go ahead, Matthias. You were going to say something. Oh, sorry. No, no. What I thought was very interesting about this whole TikTok discussion is is also a lot of people started downloading the beta of iOS 14, which would show you every time that something was copied from the clipboard, yeah. and that's what TikTok did, and that's what LinkedIn does in the background. And then I I put iOS 14 on my burner phone, and apparently Chrome does the same thing. I, I don't know why. So of course you could say, okay, maybe Chrome, you know, has good intentions, but looking at apps from certain countries that have a certain history of surveillance, um, that's also something you have to keep in mind. You know, what do they want with that data that they're grabbing? There, there might be relevant uh, use cases for what these apps are doing for, for the, the, uh, the information they're, they're actually gathering, but there also might be malicious use cases for that as well. Yeah, and there's a great discussion uh, in going on in our chat about other applications doing this. Absolutely. While it's not right necessarily for our privacy, uh, it is absolutely something that, that this is not isolated to TikTok. I think TikTok just got caught because of the China thing and how you know people are quick to point fingers and saying, China's stealing all of our data. Well, there are a lot of uh, permissions, and some of this is is on specifically on the Android devices, not on iOS. Um, but there are other applications that you that do these same types of things that are uh, made all over the world. And uh, one of the questions uh, Pete mentions in our Slack is about our Slack. In our we don't have a Slack. We don't have a Slack. Before we get in in our chat. Um, Pete mentions uh, about a pie hole. That is a uh, ad blocking and telemetry blocking service that's on your system. However, that is only going to block uh, requests to certain advertising and, and known telemetry systems. That's not going to block normal traffic going to and from the platform itself. That may include parameters that are your network interface call your network interface card ID or your advertising ID. This is stuff that will go back to the actual app developer. Yeah, no problems. You're welcome. Now, Nix, you brought up this how to perform an OSINT company assessment, both part one and part two by Cassius 8. I think that's 8. Yeah, I can't remember my Roman numerals, but Cassius, so his, his, his real Twitter handle will be in, in the show notes. Um, yeah, this is really good. It's two quite short but sweet um, posts on how to do reconnaissance, uh, OSINT reconnaissance on a company or a corporation of some kind. Uh, it's really good whether you're doing that as part of a pen test, whether you're investigating fraud uh, or cyber insurance, something like that. Um, it's good because it gets a lot of detail in, so it looks like... Um, how you profile a company from their web profile, from their domains and their IP addresses. Um, it looks at um, how you enumerate subdomains, how you dig into data breaches to find where a company might be at risk of exposing information. Um, more, some more technical stuff around the, um, like built with and security headers, looking at how their web services are put together. 
Um, so find where they're vulnerable there. It's a really good, uh, it's probably, I guess, maybe a 15, 20 minute read for both posts. But if you want a really good overview of some of the things to look for when you're doing OSINT on a company, um, it's a really good starting point. I really enjoyed reading it and learning about a couple of tools I didn't know about. And thank you to our audience. Yes, XIII is 13. It is not not it is not 8 because that would be with a V. Of course. That's right. Next week on Ocean Curious, we'll be covering Sanskrit. <laughs> oh, man. Yes, but thank you. Thank you for correcting us because that would people will be getting comments on that for the next couple of years on YouTube. Well, Ladies and gentlemen, we have reached the end of another wonderful OSIN Curious Adventure. Thank you so much for being with us. Before we go, I would like to ask our panelists here, is there anything that you're going to be doing in the next couple of weeks that our audience should know about? Lizette, how about we start with you? Well, actually, I'm going to be following a OSIN training, so I'll be very curious to see if I will learn anything new. Excellent. I love doing other people's OSINT trainings because there are a thousand different ways to do things. And sometimes I find that the way I'm doing it is the long way. And it's like, oh, what didn't you know about that? So cool. Remember the dragging of the orange little man in, in street? Yes. Mass? Thank yeah. you, OSINT Techniques. Yeah. <laughs> Ritu just, in, in that 10 minute tip that Matthias mentioned earlier, she just clicks on the, on the little peg person. I'm like, oh, you could do that. Amazing. It's amazing. All right, let's talk. Matthias, anything that we should know about you for the next two weeks? Well, not for the next two weeks, um, but I'm excited because we started a project with the German OSINT conference. Um, that's going to be in November. It's going to be the first OSINT conference in Germany and the first German, so in German, uh, OSINT conference, um, because a lot of the people in our country may not be so sufficient in English. And we just want to offer them, you know, the possibility to network and, and to learn about OSINT uh, in a nice, short, virtual conference. Uh, so you might be uh, seeing some, uh, some marketing from my side and also from the other uh, host, uh, Osint Geek. Uh, so we're going to be pushing out a lot on that. So for those of you who do understand a bit of uh, German, I'm looking at Nick's. Um, just, you know, join us in, in November. Hey, can I you... wish I paid so much more attention in, in, in high school to my German teacher and, and all of the stuff he was teaching us because my German is horrible. I would love to attend, but probably yeah. can't understand anything. <laughs> Hey, Matthias, can you say something for our German uh, listeners, just uh, promoting that? Yeah, now it's really hard to trans uh, transition back to German. Uh, aber kein Problem. Also wir haben ja im November unsere erste deutsche OSIN-Konferenz. Uh, wir haben den Begriff auf Englisch gewählt, weil sich das besser anhört. Uh, grundsätzlich sind alle eingeladen, uh, uns dort zu folgen. Ich habe den Link in unseren Chat gepostet. Uh, der wird auch in den Show Notes sein. Also haltet einfach Ausschau nach dem, was OSIN Geek und ich die nächsten Wochen und Monate dann bei Twitter und LinkedIn publizieren werden. Und wir freuen uns auf eure Teilnahme. I couldn't have said it better. How about you, Beowulf? Anything that, that's going on in your life in the next couple of weeks? Uh, nothing official, but I've been doing a pretty good uh, run of stock account creation lately. Um, so I'll, I'll be kind of uh, seeing how those pan out if they don't get hit with the, uh, the normal roadblocks. They don't seem to be. And if not, I'll try to share some of that uh, information over to OSINT Curious and help, help some folks out. That'd be great. I know that uh, Trace Labs just released a video, a, like a 10-minute long video on sock puppet creation. It's definitely something that 
uh, people are thinking about. So looking forward to seeing what, what you're finding. And it'd be interesting to continue your research. I'm just asking you to continue um, through the 2020 elections here in the United States because Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms really clamped down in 2016 during our elections with new accounts being created. So get your yeah, stuff up now. Yep. Cool. Thank you, buddy. Last but certainly not least, Nix. What's going on, man? Uh, I will actually be allowed out this week. On Wednesday evening, I'll be taking part in the OSINT Stamtish, uh, which is kind of a online semi-social, semi-OSINT discussion gathering um, amongst most of the German OSINT community. So I will be talking not in German yet, unfortunately, um, but they're very patient with my English. Um, so I will be talking about some um, OSINT investigative techniques there on Wednesday. Well played. All right. That's terrific. Well, good luck to you there. Good luck to Technozet on her efforts, Matthias and Josh. Um, I, of course, have the SEC 487 class. Uh, we actually have some things that are brewing. I can't tell you about within OSINT Curious, but uh, some exciting stuff that's coming for the community. Um, just uh, happy to be here and happy to be working with you all. So uh, I guess that's the end of our show. So uh, there's only one thing left to say, right? Stay, Stay curious. 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 Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Good night. Bye. Good morning. Bye. Good afternoon. Take care. <laughs>